Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, child abuse is on the rise in Minnesota. We remember Prince on the second anniversary of his death, and we take a look at the impact our winter-like weather is having on spring prep sports. But first... It's been a busy week at the Minnesota Capitol as lawmakers put the finishing touches on budget bills before floor votes in the House and Senate, followed by conference committee compromises and then negotiations with the governor at T-minus four weeks to the end of the session. MNN's Bill Werner joins us with a recap. Scott, let's start with one of many issues that keeps popping up year after year at the Minnesota Capitol, namely the push by business groups for a lower minimum wage for restaurant and bar workers who make over a certain amount in tips. Molly, a single mother from Lonsdale, told House lawmakers at this week's hearing, If you add the tip penalty here in Minnesota, you will be taken away from my family as well as other families just like mine. But Michael Ann Gillis with the Restaurant Workers of America warns without a tip credit, some establishments will close, while others, to cut costs, will move to counter service and automation. We don't even know how many thousands and thousands of low-wage, entry-level jobs will be lost due to this. The so-called tip credit remains alive for this session and will likely resurface before the May 20th deadline. Lawmakers before floor votes put final touches this week on transportation funding bills. House Republicans' version would increase state spending on roads and bridges, $385 million. $100 million of that would come from the general fund. Governor Mark Dayton says about that. As long as we have budget surpluses, which we have, There's no downside. Except, Dayton says, there would be less money available to increase funding for other programs like child care. House Republicans transportation point man, Hanska Representative Paul Torkelson, says about the governor's comment. He sounded a little even more optimistic than than he was last year. I'm optimistic. I think uh, some transportation funding uh, is an appropriate thing to do. One possible sticking point, the state's problem-ridden vehicle registration system, MinLARS. Earlier, the legislature granted Dayton's request for an additional $10 million to continue repairs and upgrades, but with periodic progress checks and the option for lawmakers to withhold funds. Dayton wants $30-plus million beyond that. Senate Republicans appear willing to give him $15 million of it, again with strict oversight. But the House bill has zero additional dollars. I'm at the point where I'm not convinced that uh, we can fix this. Uh, and until I am convinced that it can be fixed, uh, I am not ready to authorize any more Minlar's spending. Representative Torkelson Dayton has said he accepts responsibility for the problems, but Republicans now must join him in the solution. On the transportation front, there's also a move by Republicans for permanent additional funding for transportation. Of course, not a gas tax increase. Torkelson this week introduced a bill that would allow voters to decide this fall whether sales taxes on auto repairs and auto parts should be constitutionally dedicated to roads and bridges. Governor Dayton says he's conflicted about a constitutional amendment which would provide more money for transportation, but notes that sooner or later there's going to be another national economic downturn and we're going to be on the knife's edge with uh, the existing general fund budget and That's when the crunch will occur. Torkelson responds transportation funding must be a priority. Transportation is required to deliver all of the goods and services that keeps this state operating in good times and in bad. The legislature can put that question on the ballot this fall without the governor's signature. 
A group of high-ranking House Republicans this week proposed tapping what they say is extra money in the Viking Stadium Reserve account to build three new veterans' homes in Bemidji, Montevideo, and Preston. Vietnam vet Ron Scavel says southeast Minnesota is greatly underserved. The closest place for us to go is Laverne or St. Paul, and uh, we'd really like to have a home in southeastern Minnesota in Preston. Advocates in other parts of Minnesota making the same argument. Marv Garby, chairman of the Montevideo Veterans Home Committee, told lawmakers... Our rural vet- veterans have gone too long without the care they so richly deserve. We trust you will not let this happen. Governor Dayton says he strongly supports veterans, but he says the state's share to build three new facilities would be $66 million, more than double what Republicans propose, plus $30 million a year to operate. They need to come up with the money. Uh, otherwise, it's just a, just a political gimmick. Dayton says bonding dollars could be used, but Republicans say the governor's proposed bonding bill is already way too large. Plymouth Republican Sarah Anderson says about the GOP plan. Anybody that does vote against it, they've got their head probably in the wrong place. That's just not the right route to go. Republicans this week shored up battle lines with Governor Mark Dayton over pre-kindergarten, a key House committee rejecting the governor's request for additional money over objections of Democrat Jim Davney from Minneapolis. If we fail to act today, 59 school districts will lose funding. Lakeville Republican Roz Peterson acknowledges kids from low-income families benefit from early childhood programs, but says that's not the case with children from higher-income families. For the parents who can afford it, we might be better off utilizing our resources, making sure those at-risk kids get the resources they need. Republicans favor targeting funds to areas where students need additional help instead of making pre-kindergarten more generally available to all. Well, all this and we still have not gotten to the issue which could be the most contentious in the remaining month of the legislative session, namely lining up Minnesota's tax code with significant federal changes pushed through by the president and Congress. Governor Mark Dayton said this week Republicans are dishonest in claiming that his tax plan will increase taxes on all income brackets when he says actually over 2 million Minnesotans would pay less income tax. Republicans respond what should also be factored into Minnesota's tax burden under the governor's plan is a tax on medical services, which helps pay for the Minnesota Care health insurance program. Dayton wants that tax extended past its sunset in 2019, saying without it... Minnesota Care basically would, would disappear. Republican Representative Pat Garofalo responds it's critical to line up Minnesota's tax code with significant federal changes and as to Dayton's push to extend the medical provider tax... There's no need right now to have that 2019 issue hold up tax conformity for Minnesota. And amid all this controversy, a warning from the governor to legislative leaders during one of their regular breakfasts at the governor's residence this week. I told them I'm not going to call a special session. I'm not going to call a special session. I am not going to call a special session. Not the day after and not the month after and not until after I leave office. (laughs) Again, the deadline for the regular session to finish its business is May 20th. Scott? Thank you, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Child abuse cases are on the rise across Minnesota. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. In 2017, Minnesota saw a 25% jump in child abuse cases from the previous year. As a result, state and local officials are focusing more than ever on efforts to prevent child abuse and neglect. Joining me now is State Human Services Assistant Commissioner Jim Koppel. Jim, can you start by breaking down some of the report's data? Sure. Well, in 2017, uh, just under 39,500 children were the subject of uh, maltreatment reports. So that is a 25% increase over 2015. So we're seeing a spike. Um, About 40% of those are age 5 or younger, and uh, more than 22% were under the age of 3. So they... um, disproportionately impacts the youngest children. And, uh, and, uh, and as I mentioned, the, you know, a troubling statistic is just how we're seeing an increase across the board. And, you know, when you look at the data that the state collects, any idea on what maybe is contributing to this uh, spike? Well, uh, for the first time uh, since we've been collecting data, um, Opioid, the, the, the opioid epidemic that uh, is so troubling throughout the country uh, is contributing to an overall uh, reports connected to chemical dependency or drug abuse. And for the first time, that category uh, surpasses neglect as uh, a main reason for the, for the uh, case to be opened. And so I think one of the biggest drivers is this increase in drug use. And let's talk a, a little bit about what we can do. And, and I understand oftentimes the, the first line of defense against <clears throat> child maltreatment are people like myself, teachers, neighbors, friends. Uh, your thoughts on that? When I talk about this impacting younger children under five, you know, I, I, I young families, it's not, you know, are under stress. The income levels are generally lower than as we go through life and and get into our careers. Uh, So there's stress around, uh, you know, just economics. There's stress around just taking care of little kids that demand so much attention and uh, and need so much caring and loving uh, from their parents. So this these combined stressors kind of add to uh, an environment that can sometimes lead to a bad decision either leaving a child home alone, uh, not being able to provide for the child in a way that we would wish, um, not being able to live in places where our children are safe. And again, um, the, the additional bad decision-making of parents uh, around drug use uh, obviously is, uh, is also a contributor. So knowing that as neighbors, as friends, as family, uh, what are we going to do? Where do we step in? How do we help in these uh, situations where that, that stress level is apparent? Uh, how can we lessen that? Um, but I, I also think, you know, we call out for that from the state all the time and, and ask communities to step in and be more active in families' lives to, to help families and support them. But as a state, we need to do more. Uh, I think we need to look at you know, for every case, and this is a, a new statistic, but was just recently analysis by 
uh, our Minnesota management and budget estimates for every determined case of maltreatment, the state spends a, about $113,000. And we need to start thinking about ways that we can spend money proactively to prevent children from being maltreated that um, certainly uses the resources that we are spending down deep into the system, use them in a way where we can keep families healthy and keep families strong and keep families together and not have them enter the system. And I think that's where the future lies and that's where our opportunities lie is to get out in front of some of these predictive factors that families um, uh, have, such as poverty uh, and instability and, uh, get out in front of those and, and intervene earlier with supports that prevent the family from ever entering. Wow, this really broke my heart. I, I you know, when I saw that statistic, the, the 39,500 and that, you know, 25% jump, that's just, that's, it's heartbreaking that these children are having to go through this. So It is. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for their families as well, because no family wants to be in this position. You don't have a child to end up um, mistreating that child. I think everybody's going into this, uh, and I believe every every parent goes into this with the idea that their children are going to be successful, that they're going to have a healthy family. But the situations around them and what the what their own uh, life has been and and trauma that has been in their their own family history uh, just all contributes to you know, not being able to handle um, the, the situation well. And, you know, we, we have to recognize that as a reality and know that there are families uh, in, in need of these services and in need of help and get there in a more timely way to prevent that crisis and to prevent the additional trauma. Thanks again to my guest, Jim Koppel, State Human Services Assistant Commissioner. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. It's the second anniversary of Prince's tragic death from a fentanyl overdose. Several local events are marking the occasion, including a Prince Live on the big screen event at Target Center and an all-star celebration of Prince's life at Paisley Park in Chanhassen. As a music writer for the Twin Cities Reader and City Pages throughout the 70s and 80s, Martin Keller wrote about Prince extensively. Here's my chat with Martin Keller about his long and fascinating relationship with Prince as we remember the Minnesota music icon who left us too soon. Well, I met Prince in, I think it was right after his first album came out when he was roughly 17, very shy teenager. I think most of the interview we did was conducted on the uh, kitchen floor of Bobby Z, his drummer's uh, apartment, which was over by Lake Calhoun at that time. Uh, very difficult to get uh, solid answers out of him. In fact, I w- worried whether or not I, I even had enough uh, quotes for a story, but turns out I, I did get enough. He has such a reputation as being someone who is cryptic, mysterious, obviously genius, very unique as a talent, but as somebody who had developed a relationship with him over the years, is there something 
Was there something normal about him in your dealings with him that is would maybe be surprising to people or, or that would give people a different understanding of a more well-rounded person than just who we think Prince is? Well, it's hard to uh, attribute normalcy to a, you know, a, a guy like Prince who's obviously a workaholic and that, you know, that can be a very bad thing and somebody if they do it repetitively uh, year, year after year after year, but yet that's the way he produced such the such a treasure trove of uh, recordings. You know all those uh, discussions about the vault at Paisley. I mean, he um, apparently had hundreds, if not thousands, of songs or demos already in the can in the in the 80s. I would hear stuff from. Jimmy Jam or Terry Lewis or some of the folks in the Revolution, you know, like Prince could be putting out records. Uh, he could put out three records a year if he wanted to for the next ten or twenty years, and and that was then. I mean, we're thirty-five years down the road from that period. So, but you know, I think uh, I heard a lot of great stories about him. You know, be, uh, how he liked to relax on the basketball court and was an excellent basketball player and. Uh, you know, there's been some recent video of him riding his bicycle around Chanhassen and over in the Paisley Park parking lot. I mean, that's that's a normal thing people do. And but uh, I think anytime you've got uh, a very sort of introverted personality with uh, that much uh, superlative talent, uh, who doesn't like to interact with the with the media or the press, which he did not early in the in his career, um, you're you're going to get uh, lots of mythologies, true or false, built up around that personality. I mean, it's a lot like uh, I think Prince, in some ways, took a page from the Bob Dylan uh, um, career. You know, Dylan was uh, mysteriously elusive and reclusive, and didn't really talk to the press, didn't really need the press to survive. Uh, his his work spoke for itself, and I think at the end of the day, that same thing could be said of Prince. We were talking earlier about some funny stuff. I I, I just want to go back to that because I just had this memory pop in my head. I sure. remember going down to a, uh, I think it was a rehearsal at the... Uh, at the Superdome, I think it was the Superdome for something, and uh, he pulled up in a BMW with Vanity, his girlfriend at the time, and the lead singer in the Vanity Six group that he um, brought to life, and he was trying to parallel park, and he he saw a couple of us, I think I was there with a couple other journalist friends, and he could see us, and we were watching him. And he, you know, went up on the curb twice, and <laughs> and sort of like winced, like, "Oh, they're watching me parallel park, and I'm totally blowing it." And you know, the guy was a human human being. And uh, when you see those little sides of Prince, you go, "Yeah, he's one of us." But at the same time, uh, he was he was not really one of us. He was uh, very unique and. Uh, rare individual and we were lucky to have him for as long as we did. Martin, I'm pretty sure that that's the first instance of a Prince parallel parking story that I've heard <laughs> ever. So. Well, I'm not sure why it occurred to me, but it was a pretty vivid memory and a pretty funny occasion actually.
Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's been a trying spring weather-wise across Minnesota, and that's having a big impact on high school sports teams who've already had multiple games and events postponed or canceled. There are a few things schools are doing to try to make things better, but mostly it's a waiting game. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with John Millay, who writes a popular journal and runs social media for the Minnesota State High School League. Well, John, you've uh, uh, seen it all over the years. You've covered preps uh, for the Star Tribune and obviously now with, uh, with the journal and the blog and all your travels across the state. number of years here in Minnesota, have you ever quite seen a spring weather-wise like this? You're calling it spring, Mike. I don't know if that's appropriate. Um, yeah, extended winter. No, this is new. To, I mean, we've had bad ones. I think 2013 was bad. I've seen pictures people have tweeted from spring sports that year where it was like this but this one we're still a couple of weeks away you know even if the weather improves drastically we're not there and we're not going to be there for a while so yeah this might go down as the worst spring weather wise we've had for outdoor sports when you go around the state what are coaches saying about the challenges now yeah it's just like once teams are outdoors on their fields it's going to be a mad dash because all these games are going to Everybody's going to try to cram in as many games as they can, whether baseball, softball, lacrosse, track meets, um, golf meets. It's going to be a mad dash. There's going to be problems with enough officials. Um, you know, baseball and softball can play five-inning doubleheader games this year because of the because of the conditions. Um, coaches are there's frustration, but the thing I've really really liked is everywhere I've gone and I've seen a lot of social media posts. Everybody's having fun. You know, two baseball teams, because they can't get on the baseball field, they'll meet up at a bowling alley and, and keep score and have a, have a bowling meet. Golfers hitting balls into nets, but, but still having fun. Just a softball team going, taking a day, let's go bowling. Or let's have a dress-up day. Let's, let's have a color run, whatever it is. <laughs> coaches, you know, a lot of these veteran coaches who've been through this, they're being creative. And I think people are sharing ideas, things you can do with your teams, because nobody signs up for a high school sport like if you're on the track team you didn't sign up to run around the gym and and at some schools i think there's some kids who maybe are first timers in some of these sports who have basically said i'm not going to do this i i'm going to go do something i'm going to go lift weights or something so there's some frustration there with coaches that the kids aren't necessarily getting the optimal experience but i've really been impressed by the things i've seen just creative ways to keep having fun work on your skills until you can get outside and some hard work, too. I know you've seen and tweeted and retweeted pictures of teams bringing shovels and uh, scraping off a lacrosse field or, a, or a, 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 you know, a golf simulator or what have you. Yeah, people play, having snowball fights, building snowmen, <laughs> trying to make it better than the school down the road. Yeah, it's been remarkable. We're going to remember this for a long time. And, you know, every coach I've talked to and high school kids and athletic directors, we're all just looking for that day when the sky, sky is blue and the sun's warm and the ground is dry. And it's going to be fun. A couple of logistical questions, because I know you're getting these a lot. Um, one, people will ask, uh, can you move the state tournament back? I know it, in baseball, because I follow that closely because my son's part of it, uh, I think May 24th or 25th in his class is when the sectionals start. So can you move anything back so they can get more regular season games in in all sports across the board? Yeah, it'd be nice if we had that flexibility, but we really don't. Golf courses are booked you know, for section tournaments and our state tournaments. 
baseball facilities, softball, everything's really booked. Contracts have been signed, officials have been hired, workers have been hired. It's Everything's really locked in. So there's going to be some teams and some sports that are just, their season is going to start and then it's going to be section tournament time. And that's not optimal for anybody. But nobody really has an advantage uh, because of that. Everybody's in the same boat. Although as weird as this sounds, this last storm we had in southern and central Minnesota, they didn't get it up north. So this week now I've been seeing pictures of outdoor events in Thief River Falls and Crookston where there's really not that much snow now. Their fields are cleared. They usually pay the price. Now they're getting a little reward for yeah. that. Uh, the other question, and there's two guys who uh, are from Iowa originally where they play summertime high school baseball and softball, and this is more of a probably philosophical question, and I'm sure it gets brought up usually when there's bad weather like this. Um, why don't they play baseball in the summer and softball in the summer here? Coming from Iowa, that's how we thought it was everywhere, you know. But here, I think the baseball experience and softball, too, is is probably you get more games in. In Iowa, you don't really play those sports in the spring. You play them in the summer. It's a short season. Here, kids will play high school baseball or softball and then go play Legion ball or VFW ball or, you know, whatever out-of-season softball program they're in. I don't see that changing. The one, one that's been brought up a lot is golf because it's a spring sport here. And I don't necessarily disagree with making golf a fall sport because the, the optimal things are the courses are in great shape if you start the season in August. Kids are ready to play. They've been playing all summer. I don't, I don't know scheduling-wise all the golf courses that are needed. If they have events booked and they wouldn't want to give up time for tournaments, I just don't know that. But it seems to me that that maybe makes more sense than moving any other sport. Not that there's any momentum towards that happening. But that's one that's been brought up a lot in this kind of weather is, is golf. How can people uh, see your stuff? It's always fun to watch on uh, social media. Yeah, Mike, thanks. Um, if you go to mshsl.org, the high school league website, John's Journal is there. Um, there's a story up uh, at the moment here. Uh, there will be another story on top of it. But I went up to Fergus Falls and spent some time with their golf team at this fabulous indoor practice facility, unlike anything I've ever seen at a high school. Uh, but, yeah, mshsl.org, John's Journal. And then on Twitter, at MSHSLJohn. And if you're a Facebook person, we have a Facebook page, simply MSHSL. All right, let's warm up, huh? (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready, Mike. Thanks. That's John Millay and Mike Grimm. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening. And please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.